All right, Job, we're, uh, we're moving through. Uh, he has a total of eight massive tests. The, chapter one has the first four, which ends with his, all, he and his wife's 10 children being killed. Chapter two is his fifth and sixth test. And it, it's sickness, boils, horrendous. Uh, it's, it, it just shows you the, the, the ultimate source of sickness and disease. It's not God. It's demonic evil from a broken, sinful world. And the devil's one of his favorite tools is afflicting those that God loves with sickness. Then his sixth test was his wife telling him out of her grief and bitterness, and she believed the devil's lies, that he'd be better off dead. And she advised him to curse God and die, basically commit spiritual suicide. And Job knew better. She knew better. And he kindly rebukes her. Uh, Mrs. Job uh, gets restored, and, and, and we, that's part of reading the back of the book. Then his sixth, seventh test is today, which is his friend's. Now, friends can be a blessing. Now, I said in the title of this message, they can be a blessing and a burden. But easier to be said, friends can be a blessing and a curse. And, uh, you know, if you haven't been hurt by a friend, I doubt that you have had a friend. I've never had a friend that didn't hurt me one way or the other. And uh, every friendship goes through those kinds of tests. And some you come out on the other side and you're like, no, we're not meant to be. Uh, BFFs. Uh, uh, we're just, you know, kind to each other, but that's, it's just not in the cards for us to. So this morning, we're going to look at the good side. I'm going to give them credit. Job has three friends. Uh, they're all weird name. Elihu, Bildad, and Zophar. I don't know anybody in here named anybody Elihu. Maybe some of you haven't had all your babies yet. Here's some names. First, we're going to talk about the good things they did. So give them credit because they go from good to really bad. All right? So, you know, it's, 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 let's, let's focus on the positive first. But you got to see the negative because it's the real world. And sometimes I've been like Job's friends to others. And sometimes you have and sometimes you've had people be like that to you. And it's very painful. But the end of chapter 2 uh, starts, it's not a test because this is a blessing. It turns into the test when they start talking. So chapter 2, verse 11, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, let me just stop you. You knew he's the shortest guy in the Bible, Bildad. He's just a Shuhite. Anyway, man. I know, that's all I got. That's all I got. Just a Shuhite. He could have used lifts, uh, but he didn't just a shoe hide. Anyway, Zophar the Namathite heard about all the troubles that had come upon him. So this is, this is a, a catastrophic blow to, to not just Job and his family, but this is a huge, some think Job could have been some kind of a king. Uh, these guys could have been some kind of leaders in there. They come from three different countries. Job's got international friends Kim and I have some friends, dear friends. They live in another continent. And it's just like, it's just not fair. You know, because, you know, we do Zoom calls. and But, you know, we can't just say, hey, let's go grab supper together. 
you know, it's a, it's a, uh, from New York, it's a 16 hour flight. So, you know, it's just, you know, it's tough. Well, these, these people traveled a long ways. I don't know the distances. We're not clear on all the countries, but they sacrificially, um, it says in verse, uh, the end of verse 11, uh, they set out from their homes and to meet, to gather by agreement, to go, to sympathize with him and comfort him. So good motives, good, sincere, good goal. They don't, they get off course. They started well and ended poorly. So, but let's at least highlight the good part. They show up. That, that, that's something about friends. That when there's a crisis, good friends show up. Now, I'm not saying be rude, come in unannounced and and, you know, we have dear friends that uh, had a stroke, and, and we, we wanted to go see them. They were our best friends, and they, kept, they were just very non-assuming people, uh, which in our world, uh, I, I have no room for friends that keep score. I have church members. So that's, uh, that was a joke, but some of you didn't get that. But, you know, maybe if you're on the other end, I, I don't need to add people in my life to keep score. Well, you didn't, you know, I called, you didn't call, you know, I've texted you three times and called, and I haven't heard back from you. Well, you keep counting because it just, uh, you know, it's like the guy said to me, you know, I'm not going to be able to call you pastor until we take long walks on the beach together and talk. And I said, well, I guess you're going to have to find another pastor because the only person I'm going to take long walks on the beach with is my wife, not you. I could just see us holding hands going down the beach and, I just want to share my soul with you. Get married or, you know, whatever. I don't, I'm not me. Don't look to me. He was married, by the way. That's the sad part about it. So these guys show up commendable, sacrificial. So our friend said, no, no, you, you don't need to come. And he had massive uh, effects from the stroke and, and just private people and so finally we realized, the Lord just said, time to go. So we rent, rented a motel right in their town and called them and said, surprise, we're in town. Now, we can either come by tonight or if it's more convenient, we'll come by tomorrow. But we're coming by. And they're like, oh, you guys, I can't believe. Now, again, we weren't trying to mend. So these are friends. These are, you know, and, and, and we were their pastors. So we went and saw him, and so glad we did because it was just a couple weeks later that he went to be with Jesus, and we had some great conversations. Friends show up. It's just, you just, and you know my pet peeve, and if you're listening to the small group series on the ministry of encouragement, these guys do it right in here if it just ends here. Uh, you know, they didn't say, Job, is there anything we can do? You don't tell that to somebody in a crisis. You do something. You don't say, Job, is there anything I can do? Well, let me take a guess here. I've got boils all over my body. My kids are dead. I got no money. I got no income. I've lost everything. I don't know. Take a number. You know, the things I think of over the years that I've had amazing friends, and that's why Kim and I are still in the ministry as friends. And I'll never forget, I told you the intro to Job was when I got the letter from my dad after 32 years of divorcing my mom, and, and I went, you know, went on a fit of anger, tore up my room, Went out in camp, dug a fire pit, and opened to the book of Job and was introduced to Job. Well, you can listen to that in the first message. But what I didn't tell you is when I drove back after that night, I got to my, my room. It was a, like a boarding house for students in seminary. 
Several of the hopeful to be pastors, they're in training, I was myself, had spent hours and cleaned up my whole room, did my laundry, fixed the things I broke, put the room back in order. I walked into my bed made. I mean, it was, I can't, it was way more humbling than washing a feet. Those guys went on to be great leaders. It, 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 that's what leadership is born out of, servant-hearted. So these friends show up. They see Job and his predicament, verse 12. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. They, they were shocked, but they, they didn't let the shock recoil them from Job. His head shaved. There's boils all over his body. This guy's in dis, just desperate place. And the friends grieve with him. They weep with him. This is, you know, it reminds me, one of the commentaries I'm using to work through uh, is by uh, a pastor that's been a pastor of ours uh, from a distance listening on the radio. When we were first married, we lived off of Charles Swindoll messages. And I love him. I don't know him and I've never met him, but I have a lot of his books. This one's called A Man of Heroic Endurance, Job. But he tells a story I thought it was appropriate here about, uh, in, in a good way, what these guys uh, are doing, and then in a bad way, what they're about to do. Uh, and you'll see it reflected in this story. He tells of friends of his uh, named uh, uh, Joe Bailey and his wife, Mary Lou, lost three of their children. They lost one son following surgery when he was only 18 days old. They also lost a second boy at age five because of leukemia. Then they lost the third son at 18 years of age after a sledding accident because of complications related to his hemophilia. Joe writes in a wonderful book, The View from a Hearse, which has been changed in the title to The Last Thing We Talk About. This is Joe speaking. It could be Job. I was sitting torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly and said things I knew were true. I was unmoved, except I wished he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more and listened when I had something to say and answered briefly and prayed simply and left. I was moved. I was comforted. And I hated to see him go. And I think back at times maybe in my life where maybe people were glad to see me go. Because you have to have some Job-like experiences to really be able to tap into Job-like compassion. And God's taken some hard lessons to train me. I didn't come into pastoring having a natural gift of shepherding. It just, uh, that's why God gave me the wife he gave me to teach me that uh, kindness and gentleness. And then he gave me three daughters to go back to back to back to train. And I used to go, I hate hospitals. I appreciate what they do. It's just not my calling. I make myself go whenever I go. My wife is naturally in the spirit of God good at it. I do it out of obedience. I do it out of the, you can basically see when I come to your room, I'm like the death angel. So you can know that you're close or I wouldn't be there. Anyway, 
That's why none of you should expect me to come. When I show up, they're like, it's just an appendix. I'm all good. I'm all good. I'm good. They're letting me out tomorrow. Don't even need you, Pastor. But early on, I, I would, we pastored on Sanibel, and I would go once a week, and they had a directory at the hospital. They would say, anybody from uh, your city, Sanibel Cape, Captiva, I would visit them. And I didn't know any of them. But this one lady I did know, her husband loosely attended the church, and her name was Irma. And I would visit Irma every week. Irma had bone cancer. I'd never known people with cancer. And bone cancer is one of the most painful kinds of cancer you can have. And I experimented on Irma because I was experimenting in my faith. I was trying to find a theology of healing that could also include suffering. And, and so I went through different phases and I would get her to try to practice things and I'd get her to confess the word of God. I'd get her to confess the blood of Jesus and I'd get her to speak healing and I'd get her to, I, I tried different, and every, I'd still, I'd walk out of the room and I'd hear her groaning for the drugs groaning for painkiller. And this went on for weeks and it was just, it was, it was, it, it was afflicting to me in a different way. Obviously she was in the physical pain. I was in the wrestling pain with, I want to heal her, Lord. I want to see her get better. I want my theology to work here, God, and it's not working. And so I, I realized in things like that, that it was more important for me, yes, to have faith, but to go in there and love Irma and just appreciate the pain that she's in and weep with her. These guys did that. Commendable. And, and then it says they sat, in verse 13, they sat on the ground with him for seven days, seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering. If they could have just dropped the mic, they could have walked away as three amigos. Instead, they become the three stooges. They are horrible to Job. Horrible. So when you read them, you've got to sift through their words. It's accurately reported. It's poetically written. So there's, there's intrigue in there, color, mystery. I don't understand at all. There's things they say that are beautiful about God. But then they say things about God representing him to Job that are horrible. In fact, I want you to go to the back of the book with me, and we're going to do a run through Job here. So limber up your fingers if you're using your Bible, uh, or it'll be easy to look up. You can go back and rewatch, write down the scriptures if you want. But the end of Job, remember I told you, it's fair to read the back of the book, and, and it's not a, a spoiler alert, uh, but I, I love to see the redemptive ending. But this is God encounters Job, and they have their healing together, and then God's gives his opinion of the three friends. Of, now, there were four total. Elihu has six full chapters, more than some books of the Bible. And he's young, impetuous, arrogant, theologically bright, but, but misses it. He, when he gets done, Job argued with all the other three friends. Job doesn't even acknowledge him. He doesn't even go, hmm. When God confronts the other, he doesn't confront this guy. I think it's a worse punishment for God to just ignore you than to say, I'm really upset at you. And so whatever reason, this guy's not included in the redemption at the end. And he wasn't worse than the, the three. Uh, in some ways, he might have been, even been a little better, but still long-winded and uh, 
full of hot air and wasn't helpful to Job. Chapter 42, verse 7. In my Bible, it's called the epilogue, or they added that to just give you the ending of the book, the ending of his story, the end of Job. He's seen God and heard him. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, I'm angry with you. Now, that, that, that's, that's never good. In fact, these, it's not just I'm a little upset. He's mad at him. God has the right to do that. God loves him enough to talk to him, though. The worst God could ever be mad at anybody is to just ignore you and give you over to your own rebellion. That's what Romans 1, that's the judgment that's worse than any other judgment. It's God gave them over. Just turn, turn them over to what they wanted. And he says to, to Eliphaz, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you've not spoken of me what's right as my servant Job has. So two things happen here. One is they're rebuked. He's affirmed. Now that doesn't mean everything Job said was, was, was appropriate. Job got off on, God, he got off on some disrespectful, uh, under, he misunderstood God. He, was, he thought God was mad at him, so he was mad back at God. He thought God was treating him unfairly, questioning God's justice. But all that Job did was honesty to God. Job never said anything dishonest about God or his faith. And these people misrepresent God, and they, they condemn Job. And but, but let me tell you something. You can say nice things about God, but if you're condemning people with those nice things, it disregards all the nice stuff, the truthful things you say, because you ruined it with condemnation. You ruined it with judgment. And these, he said, I'm not happy with you guys. You've not spoken to me what's right. He tells them to bring seven offerings to Job. And he said, Job's going to pray for you. And so that I don't deal with you according to your folly. You're, 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 it's basically you embarrass me. You, you've been wrong. It's, it's, it's foolish. Your folly has been just abominable. It, it's just God was really upset. You have not spoken to me what is right, verse 8, as my servant Job has. And then we'll, we'll come back to this at the end of the story. So I want you to go with me, and let's just look at some of the things these three guys say. We'll start with Eliphaz, who starts out, he's probably the oldest. In chapter 4, he gives Job the basis of why he should be an expert, why he should have authority, why Job should listen to him, because he's had an experience, a supernatural uh, experience. And most Bible people, if you do any research, will see this as probably came from God. And I completely disagree with that. And I think he had a demonic encounter. Because see, the devil didn't give up after he couldn't get Job to curse God through the death of all his children, the boils on his body and his wife telling him to curse God. If, if, he didn't just say, oh, that's it, I'm done. He's relentless. He just changes his approach. And now he finds three naive, willing vessels. Now, now d different reasons. They, they, it could be pride, open the door, arrogance. It could be wrong concepts and theology. They believe lies. But this Eliphaz has this uh, dream, revelation. Chapter 4, verse 12. A word was secretly brought to me. Secret. When anybody ever comes to you with secret knowledge, or they write books about it, or the, the secret knowledge. In my book, I write about the ugly secret because there is no secret. 
it's a it's a it's it's clear it's just hard to to live you can read our book but when everybody tries to one up you with special knowledge that you don't have so he has a secret at night my ears caught a whisper of it amid disquieting dreams in the night when the deep sleep falls on men fear and trembling seized me made all my bones shake a spirit glided past my face the hair in my body stood on end. You wonder where those, some of these, you read through Job, you get so many phrases like skin of my teeth and different poetic ways of saying things that we use in our vocabulary. And it's, it's a beautiful book, not easy to understand. But when you get it, that the friends don't get it all right and they miss God. That's why I started at the back of God's opinion of them. A spirit, verse 15, glided by my face. Verse 16, it stopped, but I, I couldn't tell what it was. It was a form stood before my eyes, and I heard a hushed voice. Now, by now, you should be on the edge of your seat if you're, you're ready for some unbelievable revelation. He's had an encounter. He's implying that it was God or God's angel or God's spirit. But I believe from the, 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 the revelation he got, which is demonic wisdom, the book of James that we do another series on after this small group series. I, I, there's so many correlations in that book and the book of Job. But James warns about demonic wisdom. That's where these guys had a rational reasoning that they, they used truths, half truth. Like God is just, whatever you sow, that you will reap. So if you sin, you're going to have consequences. Bad things are going to happen. If you're good, there'll be consequences good thing will happen. That's true to a point. But when that's your only truth and that's your only way to deal with life, you box God into this little box and you can use it on people like a club or use it like a false security that I'm a good person, therefore I deserve good things. So what comes out of his mouth after this supernatural dream experience is he says in verse uh, 17, can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? First of all, Job never says this in the book. I'm better than God. It's an accusation. It's, 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 uh, you know, I'm sure there could be some humans that actually think this is the spirit of accusation. You're going to see as he unpacks more of Job's not trying to be more righteous than God. Job's just trying to say, hey, I'm not aware of something I've done that would deserve these things happening to me. And yet they're happening to me anyway. And then Eliphaz goes on and he says, verse 18, if God places no trust in his servants, which that's a lie, God trusts people all through the Bible. It's just not true. And it says, and if he charges his angels with error, that makes it sound like he charges all his angels. I think it's the ones that Satan is representing. He charges them with folly. He didn't, he didn't use the word rebellion that God uses about the angels that sinned. So this is demonic perspective. And through human understanding, he says, so God doesn't trust. He's never going to trust anybody. He says, verse 19, how much more those who live in houses of clay? How degrading is that? Now, again, it's half true. What are we made out of? He's using the language of Genesis. What are we made out of? 
Thank you. Wow. My questions are never hard. So if you're struggling with the answer, you're either thinking too hard or you're not thinking at all. Genesis was a clue. God made man and woman out of the, or made man and then took out of his ribs, so it's the same substance, out of the dust of the earth. But is that all it says in Genesis? Huh? God did what after he made them in, out of dust? He breathed into them. What? The breath of life. The, the image of God they became. Satan doesn't, doesn't recognize that. He hates the image of God. He hates God's creation. This is degrading. This is the, when you degrade the value of a human, you treat them in a degrading way. Because they saw Job as a house of clay, you're just dirt, you're just dust, your foundations are dust, you'll be crushed more readily than a moth. You know how easy it is to kill a moth? I mean, you, we get these things out where we live uh, called deer flies. They're smaller than horse flies, but they're like little warriors. I mean, you got to smack them like with a hammer, I mean, to kill them. They're just, they're evil. And, but a moth, if you accidentally bump them, they just go... It's like a dust ball. It's like you're just trying to flit it out of the way, get it out of the house, and you just happen to tap. That's what Satan in this dream empowers Eliphaz. Yeah, yeah, we are. We're not, we're, we're just, yeah, again, they're half-truths. You know, I had a guy, and he used to attend the church here, and, and it was a good, nice guy, and uh, generous, and, 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 but he would always he challenge me on some theological things out on the deep end. Not like, you know, and, and one day he accused me of teaching heresy, uh, something about the exodus and the blood of Jesus. said that was the worst message. That was, that was anyway. So I basically sat down with him. He said, well, you need to go online. I've got 19 DVDs and watch those. And I said, Dude, I don't need to. So I, I, I said, where did you get this? He said, I had an encounter with, with God and an angel appeared to me and gave me this assignment and this revelation. And I said, well, it might have been the Lord, but did you ever discern that it could have been the demons? No, no, because this revelation is how to, how to expose Satan. Actually, his ministry was so absorbed with Satan that that's all he could think about. And I challenged him, and I said, can you give me anything Jesus is doing in the world? Because you're telling me they're building this, and this is demonic entry point, and they're building that, and blah, blah. I said, what's Jesus doing? I said, it doesn't take any faith to see what the devil's doing. Just watch the news. You want to know what the devil's doing? Listen to the news. You want to know what God's doing? You got to get your heart and your head and your ears into the kingdom of God and see that God in the midst of crisis and tragedy is at work, and he always is. And I tried to challenge him. I said, you need to take a month and just journal about things that Jesus would say to you about you. He couldn't do it. He wanted to tell me how to fix this church, how I needed to preach this, how I needed to do more, you know. And, and he, Joseph Smith started Mormonism the same way because he had the angel Moroni appeared to him with these tablets and, and it was a distortion and a perversion. You, just because you have an experience, don't be intimidated. If someone comes at you with a, we had people back where we used to pastor, we had someone that came to us and we were putting our children in the public school 
And, and we were apprehensive about that, that we'd, that we'd homeschooled them, Christian school. And somebody came to us and said, God showed me a vision. Saw your three children hanging on meat hooks. Like, I guess it was in one, some movie. It was one of the uh, Italian movies or whatever it was where they hung bodies where cows would be hung beef. And I saw your three daughters hanging. The implication was you send them to public school, you're just as well hanging them on meat hooks. We had to get prayer over ourselves. I mean, it cursed us. It, 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 it just, it was, it was wicked. Nowadays, I would have zero tolerance on that. I'd say, that's demonic. I rebuke it in Jesus' name. Learn to test the spirits. Because that's, it's like the woman that came to me, oh, you're going on a missions trip. God gave me a dream. You're going to lose 40 pounds on this trip. I'm going to be gone two weeks and I'm going to lose 40 pounds. I looked at her, I said, I rebuke you in Jesus' name. What would it take? to? you ever think through what it would take if people would just stop? Ask the bag boy at Publix. Buddy, what do you think it would take to lose 20, 40 pounds in two or three weeks? Oh, I, I don't know. Amputation, uh, uh, near-death experience. Uh, man, just because you've got to test things. You, even friends, you've got to test what these guys say as we go through this. So he goes on just... Just beating up chapter 5, verse 1, he says to Job, if you call, no one's going to answer. When does God ever say that? When something appears hopeless, useless, and it's in relation to faith. God, all through the Bibles, call on me. I'll answer you. He said, don't even bother praying. God's not listening. Who says stuff like that? Let's, uh, let's shift to the next. Uh, let's go to uh, chapter, uh, uh, we'll go first, chapter 8. Let's do the short guy, Bildad. Okay, chapter 8, Shuhite. Bildad the Shuhite replied, chapter 8, verse 1. How long will you say such things, Job? Your words are a blustering wind. Now think about that. Lost 10 children, boils all over his body, wife's in severe depression, and you're going to tell him when he talks that it's blistering or blustering. Just basically, you're just empty wind. There's no compassion in that. Does God pervert justice? In other words, God's going to do what's right. The implication is you deserved what's happened to you. Look at verse 4. When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you look to God and plead with the Almighty, if you're pure and upright, even now, he'll rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your rightful place. Now, there are times that you can apply that to people that are in an, an obvious rebellion and they've made horrible choices. And you could say, God wants to raise you up. If you're, Job hadn't done that. And they blamed his children dying on them being sinful. Is there anything colder you could do? We just got, he, how long has ago has the dirt been on the grave? He's still, his, his wife's still in so much despair. You're going to tell him his kids died because of sin? Man. It's, and these are well-meaning people. They're not stupid, but they're susceptible to darkness because of misperceptions of God, pride in their own heart. You can hear it in their tone that they say, to Job. Go to, let's look at Zophar. He's the worst of the three, really. Uh, look in chapter uh, 11. I wrote zero compassion to Zophar. He just, he's just, uh, just nothing. 
chapter 11, verse 1. Then Zophar the Namathite replied, Are all these words to go unanswered? Talking about all their words. Is this talker to be vindicated? Will your idle talk reduce men to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? You say to God, my beliefs are flawless and I'm pure in your sight. Well, that's, that's an overstatement of what Job has said. He just said, no, I'm not hiding anything. And they're overstating it, embellishing it. Verse 5, oh, how I wish that God would speak, that he'd open his lips against you and disclose to you the secrets of wisdom. For true wisdom has two sides. Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sins. Wow. I mean, you know the old adage, if, <laughs> with friends like this, who needs enemies? That's a loose, I mean, it's just the harshness that you've got to feel the tone here. Because to God, it matters how we say stuff. You can say something that's accurate, but you can hurt people with it by how you say it. The tone communicates as much as the content of what you say. You can tell somebody Jesus loves them, but do it in such a condescending way that they don't feel any love from what you said to them. These are the people, like when I read out of Swindoll's book, that it was glad when they went away. You know, it's just, I, I had a lady one time, she got in the writing, automatic writing from God. And she was writing me letters. Sign God. He didn't like me. In fact, he hated me. And he thought I was a terrible pastor. And that was worse than the guy that called me Jim Jones one time. He said, you're like Jim Jones. The same guy didn't believe in the Holocaust. And, of course, he didn't have any deficiencies in his life. And you're, you're a cult leader. And I, over the years, my wife and I have been on the other end. We've been on the good side of friendships. We wouldn't still be here without them. We've been on the bad side. People talking about our children. And there's, nothing, there's no harder thing to do in life than to grow up in church with parents in the ministry. No harder thing. Now, we have a different church mindset. We fought to have it, but, but our kids were judged. They were told by the youth leaders that the reason the youth group weren't doing better was their fault. Blamed them for their own inadequacies. Made our children hate church. If I had it to do over again, I'd have let them go on to another church. But I wouldn't have let them back then. I was too stubborn. So over the years, we've had pastor kids come here that their parents had the wisdom to let them go to another church and just be normal. Our kids thought if this is normal sin, they had to sin up here just to feel normal. The enemy knows. He targets leaders' kids. And, and I appreciate those of you that pray for us and pray for our family and our grandchildren and, and uh, our granddaughter going or her team's going to the state championship again but she's not going she blew her knee out last night or friday night and uh, i'd appreciate you praying for her kiara and she's pretty heartbroken. worked all those years just to get to they get to go again and she's a big part of that but but we don't know how devastating took her off the field on a card and it, i don't know if it's a acl or not we don't know but you got to wait a week before you can have an mri but but pray for us pray for our family but I, wanna, I don't want to imbalance the message. I just want to say all of you have probably been hurt by others 
even though they were Christians. It's one thing to be hurt by friends that don't know Jesus. It's another thing to be hurt by friends that know, should know better. And I'm sure I've hurt my share of people uh, over the years. And when I know about it and get opportunity, we try to make amends and make peace. I just want to give you a little bit of feeling of what's Job, uh, Job's opinion of these three friends that are comforting him and giving him solace. Uh, I want you to look in chapter 16, uh, see what Job describes these guys. I love this. Then Job replied, I've heard many things like these, you miserable comforters. Wow. If you set out to be comforting and the one that you're ministering to says you're a miserable comforter, I think you're failing your mission. I, I tell this story. I, you'll hear it again if you're in small group. But it, I, I'll never forget this lady I'd never seen before came in the church. And she looked pasty white. It didn't look very healthy at all. And, and for whatever reason, that Sunday, I just, I just I beat the sheep. And uh, it wasn't the first time I'd ever done it. And it feels a lot like it's Jesus, but it's not. It's just Jamie venting frustration because I got on to him about dragging in late and blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm talking beat the sheep. Pulled their pants down, spanked them right there and went off on, preached on whatever. I don't know. After the service, I used to go to the back door, shake all the hands, kiss the babies. That's why I was sick all the time. And so I came back and, and she goes, I said, well, I'm glad you, glad you came this morning. And she says, I'm not. She said, I came in here, I was depressed. And I thought, wow, maybe she got, she said, I want you to know I'm leaving suicidal. <laughs> I probably failed somewhere in that. And, and that's where things like that begin. And meeting John Wimber in the vineyard is that if church isn't hopeful, what is? If people can't come find mercy, where will they? And so we became a mercy-focused church. We promote the gospel, the good news, forgiveness of Jesus, redemption, restoration. It doesn't mean that we take lightly sin, but, but we don't want a church full of miserable comforters. We want to be kind people. We want to be those people that listen, those people that serve, those people that pray. Job's friends never prayed for him. They talked to Job about God that they didn't know and they never talked to God about Job. They never offered to make a sacrifice for him. Well, if you're that sinful, let's make a sacrifice. Let's get God. They, they were intellectually gripped with God in a box, legalistic, judgmental. They forgot the concept of mercy. That that's part of God's nature. It goes back to the garden when God killed the first sacrifice. Job said, you're miserable comforters. Now, verse 5, he said, if I was in your place and I was trying to comfort you, he says in verse 5, but my mouth would encourage you. Comfort from my lips would bring you relief. Did I read you Eliphaz's statement, if I was you? If you don't remember it, I probably didn't. But in chapter 5, uh, Eliphaz, I, I might have skipped over it, uh, no, it's not, where, where does he say, if I, was, if I was you? Anyway, Bildad, chapter 25, verse 6, calls Job a maggot, a worm. You're a maggot. Now, there's times I felt like a maggot. But God never looks at me like a maggot. 
And if you're speaking in the name of God and you call someone a maggot, that's, you, you miss God. I used to call certain sins derogatory names and felt righteous in doing that. Nobody changed because I used a derogatory term about their sin. That's not going to convict anybody. That's just going to say, you're mean, you're worse than I am. You know, that condemnation and, and exalting yourself above others is never pleasing to God. I mean, there's one, one point, uh, I, I just, I, I hate to, I don't want to skim over this, just go to what Job said about him, uh, but in ch chapter 19, verse 1 uh, through 3, Job says, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Ten times now you've reproached me and shamelessly you attack me. Yeah, you know, and I, I said the guy was a moron, whoever came up with a statement, and someone Googled it and found out it was Benjamin Franklin. So he wasn't a moron, but he was just stupid on this, this statement. Because he's the one, apparently, if you Google it, don't do it now because you'll lose your phone. If you Google it, have church police that uh, they will confiscate. Uh, you'll get it next week when you come back to church. <laughs> Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. A crock of, you know what, that is. Some of you are wearing stuff that was said over you when you were five years old. Stuck with you like a knife, like arrows. Words of rejection, words of mocking, words of, 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 of a demonic curse put on you. Hurt by others. Lied to, betrayed, let down. That's the world of friendship. How does Job end with these guys? Bitter? Nope. We already read the, the, the end of the story. God fights his battles, defends him. They repent. Job acts like that ugly priest. He's not perfect. And he forgives them. Now, they were called friends all through the book. Never did Job turn them into enemies. John Wimber would teach us this, and I don't often do well. He said, your brother is never your enemy, even when they act like it. There are times your friends can act like your enemy. There are times friendships go south. They go bad. Uh, there's, 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 there's lots of, but any friendship worth its relationship will go through a fire. It'll take the cross to purify the friendship so that it's not idolatry or possessive or, or controlling or, or it's just healthy. Good friends don't keep score. Good friends extend grace. Good friends give the benefit of the doubt. Good friends are there when you least deserve it. Job restored and reconciled. The last word was not anger from God. The last word was forgiveness, the sacrifice. Isn't that good? I mean, because all of us, I have friendships that, that we went through patches and, and they've never been the same since. We're, we're, we're kind to each other. We honor, but it's just not meant, we're not meant to be uh, hangout buddies. Uh, it, it just, it happens. It happens in life. Uh, and sometimes it's painful uh, and, and, but that's just the way it is. The only friend that will never let you down, his name's Jesus. 
He's the only one that will never talk trash about you. He'll never talk behind your back. He'll never call you names. He'll never lie about you. He'll never degrade your children. He'll never manipulate you and try to coerce you. Know, that's just Jesus. And there's only one Jesus. Now, we've been blessed to have some beautiful expressions of that friendship through other human beings. Flawed, but friends. And I, you can count on one hand, usually the ones you start with that you finish with, friends for life. And I'm grateful for those that God's entrusted to us. And I just say to you, it's dangerous to have friends, but it's lethal to have none. It, you're going to get hurt if you build, go to a small group and build some friendships. You're going to get your feelings hurt. Somebody's going to let you down. Somebody's going to do business with you, and you're going to think because they went to church, they'd be fair and honest, and they weren't. And that happens. And so all I can say to you is Job says a couple things. Friendships have to involve discernment. There are times when people tell you things in the name of God that you cannot listen to. You have to test them. Just because they know more about the Bible, because they can beat you up with the Bible, doesn't mean they're speaking the heart of God. Check it with someone else. And someone has a dream or an experience, doesn't make them more spiritual. That guy had a dream and experience, and what did he come out of the box? He beat Job up with it. That wasn't God. He listened to the voice of the evil one. Use discernment. Know every friendship's going to get tested. Some people are uh, what they call, uh, uh, well, I call them a lot of things, but they're just, they, they can't have friendships because it's all about them. And if friendship means anything, it's showing up when my dad died and Ron Height that ran the wildlife refuge on Sanibel, and he said, Jamie, I need two things. And I mean, I'm devastated. My dad was everything to me. I feel for Charles when he told his story. He said, I want the keys to your car, and I want your shoes. And I said, well, Ron, I only got one car. He said, I'll have it back quick. And I didn't even process, what do you want my shoes? Because the memorial was the next day that I spoke my dad's memorial. He, he shined my He didn't say, Pastor, is there anything I can do for you? He said, give me your car. He detailed it, filled it with gas. And that's been, that's been 40 plus years ago, and I remember it like it happened yesterday. Just kindness. That's a wonderful comforter. That didn't bring my dad back, but it gave me that feeling of, of being loved. And whatever you do for people, if they don't feel you love them, even if you're warning them about something, and there's a place for that, but they got to feel like you care about them not just the Bible you want to speak at them, like bullets, and beat them up with it. So there's a place for reconciliation. It's a process. But you'll never get to reconciliation if you don't begin with forgiveness. Forgiveness opens the door, but it, it's, the other, there's, you've got to have two parties. Forgiveness opens the door from reconciliation, but it's not always healthy if the other person hasn't repented. And you've got to have boundaries. You forgive with boundaries. But forgiveness has nothing to do with the other person, deserving it, earning it, or being asking for it. It has to do with you honoring God. Jesus said, forgive others as I've forgiven you. I need mercy, a lot of it. 
So I give a lot of mercy out because I want to get more. I need it, Jesus. You could say that's selfish. It's No, it's smart. It's wise. So someone's hurt you. Could have been 50 years ago. Could be five days ago. But if you lay it, let it linger and go underground in you, the Bible talks about a root of bitterness that springs up and it defiles you. It brings sickness. There's one of the biggest healings I ever saw in my ministry was a lady that the night before I was doing a set of meetings in a little country church and she came up, she said, Pastor, would you pray for my, both hands were like claws. She said, would you pray for those? And I said, oh, I'd be glad to. And, and, uh, and the Lord gave me a word of wisdom and said, is there anybody that's hurt you in life? And she said, she started crying. She said, my ex-husband was brutal to me and abusive and blah, blah, blah. And so I didn't, nothing to do with him, and he, but all to do, I said, you need to go home tonight and get on your knees, and you've got to let go of the bitterness that you have towards him. She said, but I hate him. I said, he deserves that, but that's not good for you. God wants you to forgive him. That doesn't mean you're going to go back into it. It just means that you're going to release him to God. It's a choice. She went home that night. The next night, she said, pastor, pastor. I looked up, both hands doing this, waving. She had had horrible rheumatoid arthritis, crippling both hands. God completely healed them. Now, again, that doesn't equal that everybody that has arthritis has bitterness. That's the theology that Job is getting rid of in the book. So let that flush out of you. But there are times where you're having physical symptoms of things because of your soul being unhealthy. And if your soul's unhealthy, it will make your body unhealthy. And if your soul prospers, a cheerful spirit does good like medicine, it'll help your body. But again, not guaranteed. So here's what we're going to do. Let's all stand up, honey, Pastor Kim, come up. We're going to, last week we pushed back at the boils from Satan, sickness his weapon, to the kingdom of God and Jesus bringing healing. And we prayed over sick bodies and, and uh, we'll be glad to do that today. But we felt like... The Lord wanted to heal some men, some hurts from others. And, and uh, so, if it, and this, you'd know, this isn't something you've got to conjure up and think about. I don't know. This is something that if the name comes up, boom, you know. The face comes up, boom, you know. Could have been 50 years ago. Could have been, but there's, there's, you're carrying around a wound, and it's somebody you haven't taken it to the cross. Like Job took his friends to the cross and sacrificed so I want to just invite you. You don't have to say anything. You're not going to say anything out loud. But I want to invite you to come to the front. If you're carrying a hurt, a wound that's just been stuck, maybe it's words said over you that have just been crippling. They affect you. A curse spoken on you uh, by somebody out of their rage or anger or just vindictiveness. So just come. Come. I know this. It's, it, nobody's judging you. If they are, that's their problem. They're miserable comforter, comforters. So, uh, you know, we, we're a church of mercy. And so, I, just come on, stand and just come all the way uh, uh, in the front, make room. Because I know there's, there's lots of us. You get wounded. Now, maybe you've already processed it and you've done it in a healthy way. But if you haven't, I want you to come on. This is going to be a healing. There's healing's going to happen up here. But first, it's going to happen in your heart, then your body. And then the Lord will take care of that other steps if, if they're, and sometimes it's people that are, that are, I, I knew a guy that his mother was murdered on Sanibel and to, to overcome 
he went out to the gun range and shot 500 rounds into the silhouette picture of the guy that murdered his mom. Now, I understand that on a human level, but not one of those bullets is healing any of his pain. It's just making it worse. So come on, step up, step up make room. I think there's others, so, but it's up to you, you and the Lord. Can you guys kind of move down a little bit? Let some come on, up here. come on. Yeah, just spread out, spread out, yeah. yeah. Okay. And maybe you're just not comfortable to come up front. You could still do it at your seat. Uh, the Lord's not upset with you. It's just a step of faith. Sometimes it's good to humble yourself, step out. God meets us in our point of humility, but he'll meet you right where you are. Online, you're listening. Just a couple practical steps, and Pastor Kim's going to pray. And, and I, Step one is, is that you, you need to ask the Lord to forgive you for being bitter and angry. Now, you say, well, what about the other? No, start with you. Say, Lord, forgive me for being bitter or resentful. Again, you could build a strong case on why you should be, but you've got to go to the cross and ask God to forgive you. And then as you do that, then you take this person, individuals, leader, whatever it is, and you say, Father, as you've forgiven me, I choose to forgive and then whisper that name. Whisper it out. Get it out. I choose to release them from my judgment upon them. I release them. Let it go. And then now we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come and to wash off of you the effects from their sin against you and the effects of you harboring that bitterness. Come, Holy Spirit. And there may be more than one person. <laughs> there could be a multiple things that are coming to your mind right now. And, and sometimes as you're releasing one, you may not even remember or realize that that other thing was there that was maybe even more painful. And so as the Lord brings that to your attention, I know the Lord showed me a long time ago, he doesn't bring things to us and show us where the hurts are or remind us of things that are hurtful uh, to, to, you know, ruin our party in life. He does it because he wants us to get free. And this is part of the healing process is letting, we can't get free on our own, but with him, we can find that freedom. We can have that freedom, but we have to do it his way. It's not saying that what was said to you or done to you was right. God's not saying that, yes, that you have to agree with that. What he's saying is that you have to give it to him. And you have to free that person from your soul so that they have to deal with God. They may never repent. Maybe they, they do. But you'll have already given that to God. And, and like Pastor Jamie said, there may be somebody that's not even alive now, but the, the pain was brought to your life, the things spoken over your life, the things said to you, uh, not just word curses, but maybe things were done to your body. Um, 
those are the things that you have to release to the Lord. Come. And the Holy Spirit's here. Come. Tears are okay. Come. Come. That's part of the cleansing. Come. That's part of the healing. Come. That's part of God breaking through Let him come. your emotions where maybe you have held so tight trying to be strong against that. Yes. And the Lord's saying, you, you, you have to let it go and give it to me. Yes. Only I can heal you. Come, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. Come. Yes, Bring the healing of Jesus. Yes, Father. Lord, we meet you at the cross where you took our sins and you take the sins of others. Yes, and, Lord, we lay it at your feet. Lord, release these folks and those that have been afflicted by spirits, evil spirits, because of this unforgiveness, we command you to loose them in Jesus' name. We have, uh, any spirit of affliction, I command you to go yes, from the bodies and minds and emotions in Jesus' name. Thank you, we Jesus. claim the blood that sanctifies us, sets us apart, heals us, makes us whole, the blood of Jesus over these memories, thoughts, and pain. Yes, Father. Come, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Come, Lord. If you're on our prayer team, you can yes. just begin to gently come and minister to these people. Just bless what the Father's Doug, doing. Come, Jesus. Come, Jesus. Just stay receiving. If you're online listening, God's not limited. Ruby. He's touching you. Let it go. Let it at his feet. Jesus, I release that person to you, Lord, and I pray, God, that you would bless them. You would show them mercy, God. Come, Lord. Come, Dan. Lord. Dan. Come, Lord. Some guys right here. Let it go. Lord, we break every word curse that's been spoken over people. Lord, that rejection, we rebuke that in Jesus' name. Lord, you sing over your children. You don't curse and condemn them. You sing over us. We're going to sing now about God's love that comes after. Let him come after you. Stay receiving from the Lord. We're going to get to you to pray, and let's worship together.